The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. All right, I got 6.30. I, I'm just so ready to go. I'm just excited. So I want to start in on Pilgrim's Progress and be able to study. My, my car is a, it's a fussy little car. I tell you what, I've got this little clock and next to it is a temperature thing. And it said it was 100 degrees. I'm like, no way, no way. It's a fussy car. I mean, it's an, it was not triple digits today. What was it? Was it uh, what was it? High 80s? 84? So I'm not going to believe my car from now on when it tells me it's 100 degrees. It didn't feel like it. it was a little warm, but it wasn't that bad. Well, listen, we're about to start an incredible journey. I'm looking forward to it. Next week, um, we've got uh, a time at Durham Bulls Athletic Park, so we're going to suspend. But then after that, we've got, um, we got a total of, um, of nine sessions, and we're going to look at Pilgrim's Progress this summer and walk through it. And I'm going to open in prayer, and then I'm going to talk a little about the book, and I'm going to give you all, let me just lay my cards on the table, an exhortation to read the book. All right, so let me stop and pray, and then we'll, we'll get talking. Lord, thank you so much for this beautiful day. Uh, thank you for the chance to be with brothers and sisters. Thank you for the chance for Christian fellowship, and the chance this summer to walk through the first part of uh, Pilgrim's Progress. And I just thank you for that. I'm excited. I thank you for those that are here tonight to study with us. And I just pray that we could maximize our time together and enjoy it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so I told Tom to order uh, some copies of Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, we're going to resume this study in two weeks, so they'll be here. The church is going to subsidize and get it down to $5. I think psychologically, just saying what I think is the truth. It's better for it to be $5 than free. If you spend $5, you, you're probably going to read it. It's like, look, I spent the $5. I need to read the book. But here's the thing. It is Pilgrim's Progress, and I'm not going to ask for a show of hands of how many people have read Pilgrim's Progress. All right, because I don't, I don't know how many of you have or whatever, but I want to exhort you to do it. Now, let me read a quote that Philip McDuffie sent me. This is from Charles Spurgeon. Now, listen to this. All right. Next to the Bible, the book I value most is John Bunyan's, Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. I believe, listen to this, I have read it through at least a hundred times. Now that's incredible. It is a volume of which I never seem to tire. And the secret of its freshness is that it is so largely compiled from the scriptures. It is really biblical teaching put into the form of a simple yet very striking allegory. Then uh, Spurgeon went on to talk about the Bible, and then he uh, returned back to Bunyan. He said, oh, that you and I might get into the very heart of the word of God and get that word into ourselves. As I've seen the silkworm eat into the leaf and consume it, so ought we to do with the word of God, not crawl over its surface, but eat right into it till we have taken it into our innermost parts. It is idle merely to let the eye glance over the words or to recollect the poetical expressions or the historic facts, but it is blessed to eat into the very soul of the Bible until at last you come to talk in scriptural language and your very style is fashioned upon scriptural models. And what is better still, your spirit is flavored in the words of the Lord. 
I would quote John Bunyan as an instance of what I mean. Read anything of his, and you will see that it is almost like the reading of the Bible itself. He had read the Bible till his very soul was saturated with Scripture. And though his writings are charmingly full of poetry, yet he cannot give us his Pilgrim's Progress, that sweetest of all prose poems, without continually making us feel and say, why, this man is a living Bible. Prick him anywhere, and his blood is Bibline. I love that. The very essence of the Bible flows from him. He cannot speak without quoting a text, for his very soul is full of the Word of God. I commend his example to you, beloved. So what we're going to find as we read through Pilgrim's Progress, we're going to see, and many editions do this, where in the middle of the allegory, in the middle of a paragraph, it'll stop and, and put in brackets a scripture reference. Because it just seems to flow from the Bible. And that's pretty, pretty powerful and pretty valid. All right, let's begin by talking about John Bunyan himself. Who was John Bunyan? Now, John Bunyan was in some ways the last of the English Puritans, the last of the English Puritans. The Puritanism was a movement of Protestant Reformation in England, and the Puritans were people who felt that what King Henry VIII did in severing the, the connection with the Roman Catholic Church for political reasons so that he could divorce his wife and marry another woman and have an heir through that other woman was not real reformation. Martin Luther's reformation had already started to go and on basic principles of, of the, uh, the foundation of Scripture and justification by faith alone, uh, the way that souls are made right with God, the five solas. Uh, these are the basic patterns of the Protestant Reformation. They didn't happen in England. What happened is Henry VIII didn't want to stop being Roman Catholic, but the Pope wouldn't do what he wanted, give him a divorce. So he basically became his own Pope. And he had his own kind of Catholic church with himself as the Pope. That was no Reformation at all. But along come the Puritans. They were pastors and other individuals who felt that the church should be changed even more. That, that ran from about 1525 or so until, we could really say in England, until Bunyan. Uh, and then in the 1700s and on, it wasn't the Puritan era anymore. So he was a Latter-day Puritan. What that meant was he was committed to the salvation of the soul by ministry of the Word of God, justification by faith alone. The Puritans specialized in sanctification. They specialized in the journey of the Christian from justification through the rest of life. And Pilgrim's Progress is a story, uh, really to some degree, a roadmap of that journey. All right, so Bunyan was, uh, he was a common blue-collar guy. He was not a trained theologian. He was not a scholar at all. Um, he was a tinker, and what that meant was he went from place to place um, sharpening knives and repairing pots and pans. And so as he would go from place to place doing this, he would interact with people, and he had his own journey spiritually. He was a very um, vile blasphemer and a sinner. Uh, he was an individual who felt that God saved his life during the English Civil War. He was to, to take sentry duty. And uh, uh, another man switched places with him so that he took Bunyan's place on sentry duty, and that man was shot through the head. So he felt that his life had been spared, but he wasn't a believer yet. And so he continued to kind of search spiritually. And as he was plying his trade, he came, and I mentioned this in a sermon recently, he came to a certain place where he was in a kitchen, I think, doing some knife sharpening or whatever he did. 
and there were three women who were talking, and he overheard them, and they didn't know he was listening. And they were talking about the grace of God in Christ. They were celebrating what God had done. And they spoke, said Bunyan, as if joy did force them to speak. And they were talking about the glories of God in salvation, and he was overhearing, and he realized that they were talking at a level he didn't understand. He was used to what he said, being a brisk talker in religion. He was able to carry his own in a religious conversation, but he had no knowledge of spiritual things. But that started him on a pilgrimage. That wasn't his moment of conversion, but it started him where eventually he came to faith in Christ. He became a very effective and powerful preacher. He was a lay preacher. He was not licensed by the government to preach. And back then, keep in mind, in England, there was no separation of church and state. And so it was illegal for somebody without a license to preach. And so he was thrown in the Bedford jail. It was a jail on a river. It was on a bridge over a river. And what was interesting about his imprisonment was this was toward the very, very end of England, um, the government of England, persecuting people for religious reasons. Very soon, really toward the end of Bunyan's life, that stopped entirely. So he was one of the last victims of religious persecution in England. And so it was a, a mild form of persecution in this. He was incarcerated, but he could leave any time if he would just swear before the magistrate that he would never preach again. And this he would not do. He felt he was called to preach, it was his, and he was a very powerful preacher and an effective preacher. His kind jailer from time to time would let him out, you know, in the evenings or on the weekend, you know, kind of look the other way. And he would sneak into the woods and people would gather from miles around in the woods secretly to hear him preach. So he was a very powerful, powerful uh, preacher but he stayed multiple years in prison voluntarily, could have gotten out at any time. And so, uh, and it was hard because his wife and his blind daughter and his other uh, children uh, were without a, a, a father. She was without a husband all that time. And so there's a question, should he have done it? Maybe he should have given up on preaching uh, in order to care for his family, but that was his calling. While he was there, he wrote Pilgrim's Progress. And Pilgrim's Progress is an amazing book. It was published in, in 1678, and it is the most successful book in the history of English, English literature. Um, no other book that had its origin in the English language has been uh, as widely disseminated, as translated, translated as widely as Pilgrim's Progress. We have no idea how many editions there are of this book. Some people estimate 1,300 different editions. It's never gone out of print since 1678. And so there's always someone that will print it and publish it. So maybe as many as 2,000 different editions. My church history professor collected them. He had about three or 400 of them, different editions. Um, and it's just, it's very powerful. It's been translated into maybe as many as three or 400 foreign languages. Uh, the works of Shakespeare, uh, no, other, no other book in, except the Bible, no other book has been translated into as many languages. So let me just stop and say, why do you think someone who is such a book hound and a, and a self-taught man and scholar and who is constantly reading like Charles Spurgeon would read this one book 100 times or more? From what you know of, of this book, why do you think that he would want to keep reading this book over and over again? Okay, yeah. It is, I've used Pilgrim's Progress dozens of times in sermon illustrations. You have to pay a tax, a time tax, because you have to explain what Pilgrim's Progress is before you use the incredible illustration from Pilgrim's Progress. But I'm willing frequently to pay that time tax. 
Good, anyone else? Why? This is an allegory of the Christian life from conversion to heaven. Yeah, absolutely. It's tremendously encouraging. Um, and, and here's the thing. Um, one scholar said about Pilgrim's Progress, what it does is it gives you to some degree a roadmap of the Christian life. It gives you almost a picturesque feeling of the journey of the Christian life spiritually, of understanding very clearly that we are not done being saved, that we have a journey to take, that from the moment that, that, that Christian's burden fell off his back when he, he sees the cross, until he crosses the river of death and enters the celestial city, there's a long and dangerous journey to be traveled. And so what that does for us is it gives us a sense of what we know to be true is that Christianity is a journey. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Just as he has said two verses before that, you know the way to the place where I'm going. So that gives you a sense of, of traveling, a journey to be traveled. As a matter of fact, early on, Christianity was called the way. So how is it helpful for us to, to be continually reminded that the Christian life is a journey? That we're not, we've not arrived yet. How would that be helpful to you? So if any of you have studied or read Pilgrim's Progress, we're going to find this. What happens to Christian every single time he veers off the path? What kinds of things happen to him? Bad things. There we go. Let's keep it simple. Bad things happen when you get off the path. And so <clears throat> there is this straight and narrow path. Jesus said, enter through the narrow gate for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it. But, uh, but narrow the gate, straight is the gate and the road that leads to life and only a few find it. So there is this narrow way and you got to stay on it. So he, he gives us a, a visual picture of that. All right. So let's, uh, in, in Bunyan's own time, Bunyan's gifts... His linguistic gifts were a marvel to the people there. As a matter of fact, no one, many, many people who knew about, about him and the origin of Pilgrim's Progress and read it and were marveling at it could imagine a blue-collar guy like this, an untrained tinker, could write a book like this. And so they were amazed at it and they thought, how could it be? One of the most famous statements ever made about John Bunyan himself was made by John Owen. John Owen was the greatest Puritan theologian, the deepest thinker um, and the most powerful, organized, systematic thinker in theology that the Puritan movement ever, ever uh, uh, produced. He was uh, well-heeled. He was well-connected with the royalty, John Owen was. And the king actually heard that Owen was going to hear Bunyan preach. And he said, why are you going to hear that tinker prattle? And he said, if it pleased the king, I would trade all of my learning for that tinker's ability to move men with language. He had a gift of language. So here's what I want to say to you. You don't want to get an updated version of Pilgrim's Progress. Don't, don't waste your time, all right? Uh, don't waste your, your money. By the way, you don't have to spend any money on... Oh, here I just said that. You, you do have to spend $5. Sorry, I said that. All right. Um, <clears throat> other than the $5, you don't have to. You can, this is public domain. You can read it tonight. You can just download it if you want, but it's helpful to have the book. But the fact of the matter is, you want to get it in Bunyan's original language because Bunyan had a gift for the English language. Now, it's hard because it's that King James style English, that 17th century English, and it takes a little while. But once you get the hang of it, it's not bad. And, then, and it kind of comes at you at a different angle.
All right, so it was uh, amazed, uh, an amazing thing. They thought that he um, um, was guilty of plagiarism. And so he makes a defense for his authorship of the Pilgrim's Progress. At the end of uh, his other allegory, um, one of his other allegories, The Holy War, he finds these lines referring to his more famous book. Listen to this. It came from my own heart, so to my head, and thence into my fingers trickled, then to my pen, from whence immediately on paper I did dribble it daintily. Matter and manner, too, was all mine own, nor was it unto any mortal known, till I had done it, nor did any then by books, by wits, by tongues, or hand, or pen, add five words to it, or write half a line thereof. The whole and every wit is mine. So he wrote basically a poetical defense for how he wrote Pilgrim's Progress. Now, Pilgrim's Progress is an allegory. It's an allegory of the Christian life. What does that mean to you as you understand the word allegory? What does that mean? Have any of you ever heard of it? You're like, are we in English class now? All right, I will tell you what I think an allegory. Allegory is a representational story in which aspects of the story represent or, or symbolize other things. And so it's a, it's a story with a plot and with characters in it, but the characters represent people or individuals. So you'll have um, a name like Pliable, which means flexible, kind of like a Gumby character. He's, you know, he's wishy-washy. And then you've got another guy whose name is Obstinate. He's not pliable. He's stubborn and, you know, hard-headed. You're going to meet people like this. Uh, you've got Timorous, who is fearful. He's a fearful man. In the second uh, portion, you've got uh, heroes like uh, Greatheart, who is a courageous warrior and who gets wounded in his battles for the Lord and, and gets um, another man valiant for truth, similar to that. So you've got these allegorical names. Then you have certain things that happen along the way that represent things that happen in the Christian, in the Christian life. Okay? So that's what we're dealing with in allegory. Uh, if you look at your handout, then, um, there's a quote here about how he saturated his mind in the Scripture. We've already made that point. Um, I've given you my favorite map of Pilgrim's Progress on the back side of the front page. So if you turn there and look at it, um, I've got one. I was going to bring my framed copy of a map that I think my wife gave me, and it's been up on my wall. And that was done maybe within a century after uh, Bunyan wrote Pilgrim's Progress. And what they tried to do is show the route absolutely laser straight. But there's so much uh, content to cover that it's in like three portions side by side. So it's laser straight. Now go down to the bottom of the next panel, laser straight, and then down to the next panel. But they're really trying to stick to the straightness of the road. And then along that straight road, uh, you've got certain things that happen. This one, they didn't worry about keeping the road straight. You can see how torturous it looks like a serpentine type of road. But it is a straight road in the actual story. But here you've got the various things that are going to happen. So I would commend this map to you, and you can... You can um, look at it. When I teach Puritans at Southeastern, I give them this map with things covered over, and they have to fill it in on the final exam. So I would think that'd be one of the more fun questions. Did you take my Puritans class? Can you fill this in? Come on, Mason. You got it, you got it all memorized? What's that? I did for the You did quite well. I remember that distinctly. I remember right before I, uh, my students took their Luther test, I, you know, they're all clustered in a group, and they're all sh like firing questions about Martin Luther to each other. So I walked by, it was right before the final exam, I said, you will never know more about Martin Luther than you do right now. <laughs> this, is your, this is your moment, all right? <laughs> 
So anyway, but look at the map, all right? And, and let's, uh, we can walk through it. I'm going to walk through it a couple times tonight, but let's just do it on the map, all right? Uh, lower right-hand corner, we see the City of Destruction. That's where the journey begins, all right? The City of Destruction. So it's an allegory for the world. It's an allegory for the life that we live apart from Christ in Satan's kingdom. And so Christian begins, and his name isn't Christian at the beginning of the story. You find out midway through that his name at that point was Graceless. So that's his original name, Graceless. In other words, somebody who has no grace. He's not, not uh, received the grace of God in Christ. So his name is Graceless. He lives in the city of destruction. All right. That's where it starts. Then the uh, journey uh, begins. He, he starts to travel. And the first thing that happens to him is the slough or swamp of despond or depression and discouragement. So he falls into this swamp uh, of depression. And he's got this, and we're going to find out all this. So he's got this terrible weight on his back. And the weight uh, represents his sense of guilt for sin. He feels guilty for his sins and it weighs him down. And he feels that it's going to sink him down in the sea of God's wrath, in the sea of destruction. So he doesn't know how he can get rid of the weight. He's living in the city of destruction. And so he begins to journey because evangelist tells him which way to go. So as he travels, he ends up um, in the slough of despond. At that point, he has a traveling partner with him named Pliable, who uh, starts on the first 5% of the journey and gives up. All right. After the first trouble, he's done. Uh, so we'll talk about all that. But they uh, fall into the slough of despond and he is like drowning there. Depression, discouragement, etc. Um, he is helped or assisted up out of it by an individual whose name is Help. He's pulled up out and he continues on his way. Uh, the next thing that happens to him is he interacts with um, a guy named Mr. Uh, Worldly Wise Man. And Mr. Worldly Wise Man gives him advice on how he can use his own morality to get his weight off. And if you go over to the town of legality, he can, by obeying the law, get rid of his weight. But as he turns aside and tries to get to um, the city of, of legality, um, he finds himself on a mountain that's steeper and steeper as it goes, and it's starting to like lean over him and destroy him, and it's covered with fire, representing Mount Sinai. It represents the law of God. And so all it does is just keep rising up against him and testifying against him, and he can never make it. Evangelist finds him there and rebukes him for getting off the path, which he did. He got off the path to turn off to this uh, mountain, and he gets back on the right path. He's heading toward the wicket gate or small narrow gate, um, which he knocks on. He knocks on the narrow gate and a porter or a gatesman uh, there asks him some questions, who he is, etc. And then he enters through the narrow gate. And there he, uh, he's actually, it's interesting, you're not sure, is that his moment of conversion? No, because he still has his, the burden on his back, but he has entered into um, the narrow gate at that point. The next thing that happens is he ends up at someone's house called the interpreter's house. Interpreter's house, interpreter represents, I think, uh, you could say a, a pastor who fills your mind with images and with word pictures and different things that help you in your Christian journey, illustrations. Bunyan was a phenomenal illustrator of scripture. And so there's a series of vignettes that are acted out in Interpreter's House that we'll go over one at a time probably next week, not today. But they give you aspects of the Christian life that, that show you principles that you need, and they're all acted out. And so it's like almost like being in a museum or watching a play, and there are things that 
teach you spiritual lessons. That's an interpreter's house. He goes on from interpreter's house and then uh, heads up the hill. Oh, I'm sorry. The next thing, sorry, is he comes to the cross. Sorry, I don't want to skip that. All right, that's a big moment. So he comes to the cross and he sees the cross there. And finally, his burden is loosened from off his back. It rolls down the hill and goes into the empty tomb where uh, Bunyan says that Christians saw it no more. So it represents just the complete freedom from guilt that we have when we come to Christ and we understand Christ's death and resurrection for us. So that's the cross. Next, he begins to travel up the hill of difficulty. There's some bypaths that, and some conversations he has, some people that are not wanting to go up the hill of difficulty, but there's no other way to go. The straight and narrow goes up that hill of difficulty. And he's climbing and it's very hard. And as he travels, um, he's climbing with his hands and, and feet. He's almost crawling, it's that steep. And it's very, very tough, and he's having a hard time getting up it. But he's making progress. About two-thirds of the way up, I think, there's a shady arbor there, which is put there uh, for a break, a rest. And he goes off uh, into the shady arbor, and he rests. Um, By the way, at the cross, I forgot that, he was given a scroll and a robe and some other emblem of his conversion. And the scroll he could read in frequently, etc., and he would continue to read... uh, you know, on his journey. The scroll probably represents assurance of salvation, a sense of your own forgiveness, a sense of your own future um, with uh, Christ. So uh, while he's up there, he's looking at his, in his scroll and, and he's in the shady arbor and he's resting and it's nice to get a break from the hill difficulty. But he's there too long and while he's there, he falls asleep. And so the afternoon wanes on and by the time he wakes up, it's very, very late in the day. And he wakes up with a start and he's like, what have I done? And he gets up immediately and starts going back up the hill. Now, have you ever left quickly for something like for a plane flight or for church or something and you forgot to take one look around you and you left something very important on the table or something like that? You know, you can lay everything out for yourself, but if you're in a hurry right before you leave, you might forget all of it. I've done that time and my wife will ask, would you please bring X to the church, you know, Tupperware with a bunch of cupcakes? Sure, hon. I'm two-thirds of the way to church before I remember it. Why? Because I left in a hurry and I forgot the cupcakes. Whereupon I dutifully circled back and went back and got the cupcakes. Um, But at any rate, so he gets up and he loses his scroll and he doesn't know he doesn't have it. So he finishes up to the top and when he gets to the top, there's some people coming the other way saying, you need to turn around, it's way too dangerous, they're filled with terror and all that because there are some lions on either side of the path. He's trying to get to the house beautiful, basically a hotel for the night. Um, And he's terrified and he reaches for his scroll to read to bring him comfort and it's not there. And he knows he can't go on without it. So he turns back and he he figures out he probably lost it while he was asleep. So he goes all the way back down down the hill to where the shady arbor is and he picks up the scroll, he finds it there, and he's just filled with self-reproach. By the way, it's just a, a clear message of how important it is for us to use recreation wisely, to not become addicted to the things that God gives us in small measures to bring us joy along the way, that we not immerse ourselves in them and become addicted to them. And it's just a very, very clear message that comes there because he's really chiding himself. So he gets his scroll back. He's going back to the uh, hill difficulty. By the time he gets to the top, it's basically nighttime. The lions are there, but he can't see because it's dark that the lions are chained. And if he stays on the path, they won't hurt him. But he hears a voice from the hill, uh, sorry, from House Beautiful saying, the lions are chained, stay on the path and they won't 
they won't get at you. They kind of represent Satan in his limited ability to attack us. Um, he's on a chain, he's on a leash, he cannot tempt you beyond what you can bear. So he goes on there and he gets to the house beautiful and he is grilled at the door. And by the way, one of the key in indicator or key issues with Pilgrim's Progress is the dialogues that go on. You gotta read them. The children's versions never have the dialogues because they're deep in theology. They have a lot of things. They tell the basic way stations along the way, but they don't have the discussions. So there's lots of grillings that happen, all right? So he has to give an account for himself at the wicked gate. He has to give an account for himself at the house beautiful, etc. So the porter there at the door asks him who he is, where he's come from, etc. He says who he is, where he's come from, what does he want? He wants lodging there for the night. Why are you here so late? So he's got to give an account for why it's that late in the day. Well, anyway, he goes in the house beautiful. He's, there are three beautiful uh, young women there whose names are, I think, Prudence, Charity, and Piety, something like that. And the, it's interesting, the Puritans actually named their daughters things like that. Um, but I don't know if they got it from Pilgrim's Progress or that was just a regular practice. But these uh, damsels, these young women, are very godly and they grill him all kinds. They're eating dinner together and they're like, tell us about yourself, you know? And they get into all these. And one of the most convicting aspects of this is they begin asking him about his wife and children who he has left behind. He's not brought with him. They don't want to come. Now, they're going to come in part two. Christiana and his children come in part two, but they don't come in part one. It's like, well, why didn't you bring them? Uh, they wouldn't come. Well, didn't you warn them? Yes. I mean, just this grilling. And it really is convicting because you're like, is there any chance the Lord might ask us those kinds of questions on Judgment Day? What about your brother? What about your sister? What about your mother? What about your uncle, your aunt? Didn't you warn them? Didn't you talk to them? Did you ever share with them? That kind of thing. And I can't imagine that the damsels in House Beautiful are, you know, more strict and more concerned about all that than the Lord will be on Judgment Day. So there is that sense. So he's there at House Beautiful. He gets equipped for his uh, battle that he's about to face. And he goes down into the Valley of Humiliation. He's got armor at that point on that they've suited him up with. And he battles Apollyon. He battles the devil or a demon. And they have a fierce battle. It's like a battle with temptation. And this terrible, fierce battle goes on. And he is just about to die, um, but he reaches at the last minute. Um, he reaches for the word of God, the living uh, uh, sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And he gives uh, Apollyon a wound. And he also prays and God, through the combination of the word and prayer, Apollyon uh, goes off until another time. Then he walks through the valley of the shadow of death, which is a very dark place. Uh, he can hear the moaning of people that are wounded and damaged, etc., on that valley. He makes it through to the other side. Uh, while he's traveling, it's one of the worst times as he's traveling, he hears someone singing a hymn. And uh, it's in the dark, and he's like, huh, there's somebody else on this road. And that person is um, a fellow pilgrim named Faithful. And the two of them become friends, and they walk together, and they have amazing conversations together, uh, Christian and Faithful. Next thing that happens is they end up in a place called Vanity Fair. Uh, from which the magazine got its name, I'm certain of it. Um, um, Vanity Fair um, represents the world and all of its allurements. If you think about 1 John 2, it says, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the, love of the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, boastful pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its uh, desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God will live, live forever. First John 2. So that's what Vanity Fair is all about. So they go in there, and they just want to get through to the other side and keep going. They don't want anything there. But what ends up happening is the people there begin to insult them, and begin to assault them, um, and attack them. And they effectively start a riot just by trying to move through and not do what the people there want them to do. 
And so both Christian and faithful are arrested and brought on trial. And it's a, it just represents godly people who have again and again throughout church history had to stand on trial before governments to give an account for their faith in Christ. And during that trial, Faithful gives a very bold, clear testimony to faith in Christ, and he is put to death. He's executed. Uh, Christian somehow gets off, and he makes it out of the city. But there's another individual named Hopeful who hears him and who is persuaded because of Christian's courage to join with him in the, in the journey. And so Christian and Hopeful travel on together, and Christian and Hopeful basically make the rest of the journey together. They move on uh, from uh, Vanity Fair, and then they have their probably their worst trial of the entire journey. As they're traveling along um, the straight and narrow road, and remember the basic rule is what concerning the road? Stay on the road. Well, the path looks rocky and rough and it's ascending. Not as rough as the hill difficulty, but it's whatever. And there's this meadow with soft grass just right alongside of it. And there's a fence between them. And Christian says, why don't we just jump the fence and go right along the side? Uh, it's just, it just runs right along the side there. And then we can, you know, if, if they digress, then we can get back on the road. Well, he talks, Hopeful says, we probably shouldn't. We should probably just stay on the road. But because Christian's older than Hopeful, he is persuaded by him and they jump the fence, the stile, and they go off into Bypath Meadow. But they don't realize that little by little by little by little, it is digressing and they don't even notice. And that's where, you know, in Hebrews 2, it says we must pay more careful attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. So there's a drifting that's going on, and they get further and further from the path, and they don't realize that they're on the terrain of a terrible giant uh, whose, uh, whose castle is called Doubting Castle, and he is named Giant Despair. And this is a terrible, terrible time that Christian and Hopeful have, and it really represents a struggle that many Christians have with depression. Um, and the giant has absolutely no mercy He's beating them up every day, does not feed them, does not give them any, anything to drink, and just gives them ways to kill themselves. Gives them a dagger or some poison or a rope and just keeps exerting, exhorting them to kill themselves. He says there's no way out, and he shows light there where there's all these bones of other uh, um, pilgrims that have been captured and have never escaped. And this just goes on day after day. It's basically the worst trial Christian ever went through. And he just keeps reproaching himself for getting off the path. He keeps beating himself up, and he's tempted to, to kill himself. But Hopeful, well-named, never gives up. He says something might happen. I mean, we might get out. There could be some, some way out, and, and we should not be our own murderers. And let's just hang in there and not give up. Then suddenly, Christian remembers that he has a key in his breast pocket. He had forgotten it all that time, and it was called Promise. And he pulls it out of his breast pocket, and he finds that it, this key fits any lock in the castle. It actually changes size and shape to meet every lock. And so um, they start unlocking, and he had the key the whole time. Pause. It kind of almost represents Bunyan himself, who could have gotten out of prison anytime he wanted. It's kind of interesting that way. But here's Christian and Hopeful, and by, tr by having the hidden word of God in their heart, they're able to get out of despair, out of discouragement, and get out. So they uh, <clears throat> unlock the gates and they start running. And the giant can't be out at, in the daytime, I guess. Um, and so he ends up being blinded by the light and he uh, can't chase them. And they make it back to the path. And they put a warning sign for all of us who follow. Do not jump the fence, <clears throat> but stay on the straight and narrow. So that's uh, Doubting Castle. Then they go on to Delectable Mountains, where the shepherds there give them some telescopes. <clears throat> and they're able to get a glimpse 
of the celestial city. They're able to see through the telescope the celestial city. It's kind of cool because telescopes hadn't been around long. Galileo was a 17th century scientist and all that. Hadn't been going on long. So Bunyan's kind of up to date, like cutting edge and all that. But here's this telescope and you can see the celestial city. And this represents also Beulah land that we'll get to in just a moment, represents foretastes of heavenly joy that we can have in this world. Where you can have, actually have glimpses of heaven. You can have glimpses of what your life is going to be like in heaven. That's why I'm writing the book right now in heaven. It's kind of exciting. So um, he travels through uh, the delectable mountains. Um, there's other aspects here that I, I don't want to get into right now. The enchanted ground is a place where they should not lie down because there's all these poppies, I guess, or something like that. And it gives off this fragrant aroma that's basically a narcotic. And they end up just sleeping there for a long time. And they finally have to get up and they end up getting rebuked and chastened by God because they didn't take the advice. Then they get to Beulah land. Um, Beulah land is you know, a scriptural name. It's a Hebrew word, which means beautiful land. And there they have uh, an overwhelming and overpowering foretaste of heavenly joy. It's a, a beautiful, fragrant place where there's orchards where you can eat and be refreshed. And it's just this side of the river of death. And so they have foretaste of heavenly joy right before they cross the river of death. And so there's the river, upper left-hand side, there's the city of Zion, and they have to cross the river. And the river of death represents dying, and Christian and hopeful um, have to cross it. They're looking this way and that for a bridge, but there's no bridge. And so they ask the shining one, the angel, is there any way over without crossing the river? He said, yes, but only two people have ever made that trip. All right, so that's uh, Enoch and Elijah, and basically you're not them. So <laughs> you are going to have to go across the river. And they say, well, is it deep? And the angel answered, it'll be, uh, it'll be deeper, shallow in proportion to your faith in the king of the place. So in other words, the more faith you have, the easier your crossing will be. And it's very interesting that way, the way Bunyan, you know, has that percep perceptivity. Not everybody dies easily. Some people struggle. And so Christian's one of those that struggles. He feels like he's drowning. And he remembers all of his past sins. And, and Satan is just filling his mind with doubts and with accusations. And he thinks he's not fit for heaven and all that. Hopeful goes right across like, you know, I don't know, he's waiting or something like that. He doesn't seem to have a lot of trouble. Don't you wish he'd be like hopeful? I mean, he's filled with hope all the time, but that's him. And he keeps helping his brother. He said, you know, I can feel the ground. The ground's solid. Just put your feet down. By the way, it reminds me of something that actually happened to me in life. I actually fell through the ice in Massachusetts. All right. It was March and I and a friend foolishly went out to get a hockey net. All right. You don't go on the ice on a pond in March in Massachusetts. It's just a really stupid thing to do. So we went out there and we're trying to haul this, this net in there and the ice started collapsing on our feet. So we're running for the shore, running for the shore. And, you know, finally it goes and I'm in I'm, and I'm drowning. There's no doubt about it. I'm freezing, I'm drowning and all that. And my friend yells to me, stand up, just stand up. And so there it was, I was chest high. You know, <laughs> like what an exciting moment, you know, what an idiot. So it's like idiocy at every level, all right, straight across. So this is not so humorous, it's just, in effect, Hopeful says, just put your feet down and trust in, the, in God. He's not going to abandon you. And finally, he finds solid ground under his feet, and he finishes the journey. And when they get across, Christian and Hopeful are met by angels who escort them with trumpets and with all kinds of signs of welcome. And go, they go up this hill, but they have no trouble getting up because they have left their mortal remains in the river. And they are traveling up. They are absent from the body, present with the Lord. You know, and they're going up to the celestial city. And they come to the gate, and they have to give in their scroll. And both of them have their scrolls. So don't leave your scroll at the uh, shady arbor. That's a bad thing to do. So they hand in their scroll. 
souls, and they are allowed to come in to the um, celestial city. Bunyan, as the author, says, I could, I could see in through the gate, but I couldn't get in. And so I, I could see this and I could see that, but I couldn't see everything. And, and it just made me wish I were with them. So that's Bunyan as the author at that point saying, I wish I were Christian and hopeful. That's how part one ends. So that's the whole allegory and all that. You can see the, the, the power of it from being dead in transgressions and sins, the life as a non-Christian, through all of these dangers, toils and snares, across death and up into the celestial city. Like I said, it gives you a sense of a roadmap for the Christian life. Any questions or comments before we get into some details on the first stage? Okay, I just finished reading this to my kids in the morning, so we would get up in the morning and read it. I think they heard most of it. They were, they were quiet and calm with their eyes closed at 6.45 in the morning. They looked very comfortable. And uh, I didn't quiz them after each, each time, so I'm sure they heard some of it. All right, so here is an overview of the whole journey. We've just been through that. Let's talk about the first stage. And what I, what I propose to do with the 18 minutes or so that we have left is just read an actual portion of it and then weave in some scripture and talk about it. So that's what we'll do with the rest of the time. This is how it starts. As I walked through the wilderness of this world, I lighted on a certain place where was a den. And I laid me down in that place to sleep. And as I slept, I dreamed a dream. I dreamed, and behold, I saw a man clothed with rags standing in a certain place, with his face from his own house, a book in his hand, and a great burden upon his back. I looked and saw him open the book and read therein. And as he read, he wept and trembled. And not being able any longer to contain, he break out with lamentable cry, saying, What shall I do? So it begins with Bunyan saying he's uh, in a den, probably his prison, Bedford Jail, and he lays down to sleep in the jail and he has a dream. So he portrays the whole allegory as a dream. It's a dream sequence. And in it, he sees an individual. Now, what does Bunyan tell us about this individual? There's a number of factors or features about this person. What does he see? All right, so he's clothed with rags. What do you think that uh, symbolizes? Righteousness is like filthy rags. It reminds me of the church at Laodicea that thought they were rich and healthy and didn't need a thing. And he said, you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. So it's like our, our unrighteousness. Okay, what else does it say about him? He's clothed with rags. What's, what's on his back? We already mentioned this. A great burden, terrible burden. Some people think that Bunyan had an experience of this in that he brought his sharpening wheel, uh, a stone that he would spin to sharpen knives on his back. And so you can well imagine a wheel like that would be very, very heavy. But here, this is an allegory, and it represents his sense or feeling of guilt for his own sins. It's weighing him down. All right, what else? He has a book in his hand. And as he's reading the book, what is the book doing for him? It's causing him to weep and tremble. Now, there's little doubt what this book is. All right, this book is definitely the Bible. And as he reads the scripture... He weeps and trembles. Also, his face is away from his house. So here's one of the key things. There's really a, a sense of a solitariness to our journey. We make this journey alone even if we have people with us, all right? We have to ourselves flee the wrath to come. We have to ourselves stay on the path. God can bring people along with us, but we have to give in our certificate at the gate. We have to stand before God alone on Judgment Day. So people can help us, 
but we have our own journey to make. So his face is away from his house. And he breaks out with a lamentable cry and he says, what shall I do? It reminds me of a couple of moments in the book of Acts after Peter preaches his Pentecost sermon. Could someone read this for us? Acts 2, 37, 38. Okay, fantastic. And someone else, Acts 16, same kind of thing, same question. Now, interesting, in both Acts 2 and Acts 16, what is the attitude, the emotional state, the demeanor of the people saying, what shall we do? How would you describe their attitude, their demeanor? They're distraught. The Philippian jailer, was he distraught? Yeah, he was about to kill himself. He was about to fall on his sword. All right, what about the people there in, in Jerusalem who heard the Pentecost sermon? What was their attitude at that moment? They were cut to the heart. They felt guilty. Peter said, you crucified him, but God raised him from the dead. They were cut to the heart. They felt guilty. So here's the thing. What does that tell you about evangelism? Think about this. Would you like someone to say to you, what must I do to be saved? If you're in evangelism, would you like someone to say that to you? Thank you. I, I would love that. All right. AJ, we just went out. Would you like one of those guys we talked to to say, what must I do to be saved? I'd be like, yeah. But there's got to be some lead up into that. Like we, we were there for about three or four minutes talking to those guys. So I'm not expecting that right up front. If I go up to somebody and say, what mu-, and they say, what must I do to be saved? I'm like, wow, there's been some back work going on here. All right. But let's say you had a good long time to build a relationship, workplace evangelism, a relative, or even somebody on a plane you're talking to for a couple of hours. We want them to get to a certain point where they are deeply troubled and think that they, are, they need to be saved from something. The word saved is a very strong word. What must I do to be saved? So like Amazing Grace says, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to," remember the first part? Fear. And grace my fears relieved. So we actually need to be, through the Holy Spirit, through the Word, ministers of fear to people. We want to deliver fear to people if they are lost. We don't want them to feel that it's okay to be outside of Christ. And that's hard to do, isn't it? But you do that by means of the law, by means of the conviction that comes for sin. And so both in Acts 2 and Acts 16, they are ready to find out how they can be saved. And so is Christian. All right, so we continue. In this plight, therefore, he went home and refrained himself as long as he could, that his wife and children should not perceive his distress. But he could not be silent long, because his, that his trouble increased. Wherefore, at length, he break his mind to his wife and his children. And thus he began to talk to them. O oh, my dear wife, said he, and you the children of my bowels, I, your dear friend, am in myself undone by reason of a burden that lies hard upon me. Let, me. let me say something about the word bowels. In the KJV, you sometimes have that. That's the seat of emotions. You know how you talk about like butterflies that you have in your stomach? That kind of, you feel emotions down in here. So that was, uh, I think, more of an actual kind of biological sense of where you have strong feelings. So that's what he's saying here. You are the children that I dearly love. I've got this burden that lies hard upon me. Moreover, I am for certain informed that this our city will be burned with fire from heaven in which fearful overthrow both myself with thee my wife and you my sweet babes shall miserably come to ruin except the which yet I see not some way of escape can be found whereby we may be delivered. 
So imagine being the wife and children hearing this man say these things to you. And look at what Bunyan writes. At this, his relations were sore amazed. Not for that they believed that what he said to them was true, but because they thought that some frenzy distemper had got into his head. That means they thought he was nuts. Therefore, it drawing towards night, and they hoping that sleep might settle his brains, with all haste they got him to bed. But the night was as troublesome to him as the day. Wherefore, instead of sleeping, he spent it in sighs and tears. So when the morning was come, they would know how he did. He told them worse and worse. He also set to talking to them again, but they began to be hardened. They also thought to drive away his distemper by harsh and surly conduct to him. Sometimes they would deride. Sometimes they would chide. Sometimes they would quite neglect him. Wherefore, he began to retire himself to his chamber and to pray for them and pity them, but also to condole his own misery. He would also walk solitarily in the field, sometimes reading, sometimes praying, and thus for some days he spent his time. So what does this tell you? This is kind of the Puritan ver- uh, vision of conversion, okay? What does it tell you about that, about conversion? Because he's not converted yet. What did it tell you? There is stuff that goes on. It's a process. Genuine conversion is frequently preceded by these kinds of anguished wranglings and difficulties. And again, I wonder if we don't, we do a disservice by going too light on the law, too light on fear, too light on hellfire and brimstone, because we don't want to be characterized that way when it's true. It actually is true that people will be burned eternally in in the fires of hell if they do not repent and believe. And so we actually would like people to be distressed. I actually finished one witnessing time with a guy on an airplane saying, I will pray that you will be unable to sleep tonight because of the things we've talked about. He said, well, that's an interesting prayer. I'll never forget that. It's like he wasn't upset by it, but it actually lined up with how we were talking. You realize how serious the thing that we were talking. So anyway, uh, this also reminds me, Jesus said, do not think that I came to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. And so we see that very, very plainly here. All right? Well, as he's wandering out in the field, he meets a man named Evangelist. I saw also that he looked this way and that way, as if he would run. (laughs) Yet he stood still because, as I perceived, he could not tell which way to go. That's what, brothers, what shall I do to be saved means. I don't know what to do. Don't know where, where to go. I looked then and saw a man named Evangelist coming to him and asked, Wherefore, why dost thou cry? Why are you crying? He answered, Sir, I perceive by the book in my hand that I am condemned to die, and after that to come to judgment. And I find that I am not willing to do the first, nor am I able to do the second. Then said Evangelist, Why not willing to die, since this life is attended with so many evils? Wouldn't you rather just escape this life? It's a difficult life, right? We're all filled with pain and sorrow. Wouldn't you rather just die and escape it? What does he say? The man answered, because I fear that this burden is upon my back um, and it will sink me lower than the grave and I shall fall into Tophet. That's an image from Isaiah 33. It's a picture of hell, the burning fire of hell, Tophet. And sir, if I be not fit to go to prison, I am not fit, I am sure, to go to judgment and from thence to execution. And the thoughts of these things makes me cry. 
Then said Evangelist, If this be thy condition, why standest thou still? If this is what your situation is, why are you here? He answered, Because I know not whither to go. I don't know where to go. Then he gave him a parchment roll, and there was written within, Flee from the wrath to come. That's uh, quoting in part John the Baptist's statement where he said to the Sadducees and Pharisees, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath, the wrath to come? The man therefore read it and looking upon Evangelist very carefully said, whither must I fly? Where do I run to? Then said Evangelist, pointing with his finger across a very wide, wide field. We should be doing slides by now. It just occurred to me about the slides. I'm sorry. Go ahead, kick it, kick it out. All right, there's Bunyan. Hi, there he is. Reed. I am so sorry. That's... That's the one in my, see the straight, uh, the three straight lines? I forgot the slides. Sorry about that, brother. All right, go ahead. Uh, yeah, all right. So, all right, so, on. There he is with the burden on his back, and he's reading in the book. There's the city of destruction behind him. Click. There's his wife and kids not knowing what to do with him. Um, go ahead, next. And there he is with evangelists. All right, we're right on. Thank you. Sorry about that. My bad. I don't usually do the slides, so that's why I forgot. All right, flee the wrath to come. Whither must I fly? Then the evangelist, pointing with his finger across a very wide field, said, Do you see yonder wicked gate? I love this. The man said, No. All right, so he doesn't see anything. All right, he's blind, spiritually blind. Then said the other, Do you see yonder shining light? He said, I think I do. Then said Evangelist, keep that light in your eye and go up directly thereto. So shalt thou see the gate at which when thou knockest, it shall be told thee what thou shalt do. So again, we've got that idea. As Ryan just said, it's a process. All right. He doesn't see the wicked gate. It's there, but he doesn't see it. Does he see the light? Kind of. Go in that direction. Keep going in that direction. And then you'll be told what to do. So I saw in my dream that the man began to run. Now, he had not run far from his own door, but his wife and children, perceiving it, began to cry after him to return. But the man put his fingers in his ears and ran on, crying, Life, life, eternal life. So he looked not behind him, but fled toward the middle of the plain. So go to the next slide. So there's his wife and his kids calling out after him as he runs, and they're begging him to come back. Uh, can someone read Luke 14, 26 for us? All right. Uh, don't hold back. If your wife's not ready to, to run, if she's not ready to come, and, and this happens. God frequently converts one of, uh, uh, one of the spouses and not the other. It does happen. You can't wait for the other person. You can't wait for the kids. The question is, is this the gospel? Is this the truth? Do you need Christ? And so, uh, so it is. Somebody read Luke 9 for us, 61, 62. Right. And then Luke 17 says, remember Lot's wife. What are we supposed to remember about her? What does she do? She looked back. Don't look back. And so he's got his fingers in his ears and he's running. So he doesn't want to hear anything. He's just going. Whoever tries to keep his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will preserve it. Now, some neighbors see him run too. Um, the neighbors also came out to see him run. And as he ran, some mocked, others threatened, and some cried after him to return. And among those that did so were two that were resolved to fetch him back by force. The name of the one was obstinate and the name of the other was pliable. You can see them at the bottom. So they're running after him. Now, by this time, the man was a good distance from them. But however, they were resolved to pursue him, which they did. And in a little time, they overtook him. 
Then said the man, Neighbors, wherefore are ye come? Why are you out here? They said, To persuade you to go back with us. But he said, That can by no means be. You dwell in the city of destruction, the place also where I was born. I see it to be so. And dying there, sooner or later you will sink lower than the grave into a place that burns with fire and brimstone. Be content, good neighbors, and go along with me. Next slide. Do the next slide. So there he is talking to them. What, said obstinate, and leave our friends and our comforts behind us? Yes, said Christian, for that was his name. Because that all which you shall forsake is not worthy to be compared with just a little of that which I am seeking to enjoy. And if you will go along with me and hold it, you shall fare as I myself. For there, where I go, there is enough and to spare. Come away and prove my words. So come with me and you'll see. We're going to a beautiful place. Obstinate. What are the things that you seek since you leave all the world to find them? Christian, I seek an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, that fades not away. That's straight from the Bible. I mean, that's the thing with Bunyan, just flowing from Scripture. And it's laid up in heaven and safe there to be bestowed at the time appointed upon those that diligently seek it. I love this part. Read it so, if you will, in my book. Tush, said obstinate. In other words, garbage. Away with your book. Will you go back with us or no? So that right there, when you look at that attitude, what does that represent? Like I said, these are all allegorical characters. This guy is a stubborn individual. What is that statement? Tush, away with your book. Will you come back with us or not? What does that mean to you? The Bible is worthless. Get it out of my face. I have no interest in it. It has no interest to me. Are you going to come back with us or not? It's that simple. Now, that's the basic attitude that an unbeliever has toward the Word of God. Uh, no, not I, uh, said the other, because I have laid my hand to the plow. That's Christian. He's not going back. Come then, neighbor pliable. Let us turn again and go home without him. There's a company of these crazy-headed coxcombs that when they take a fancy, by the end they're wiser in their own eyes than seven men that can render a reason. Then said pliable, Mr. Gumby, Mr. Spiritual Gumby, don't revile if what the good Christian says is true. The things which he looks after are better than ours. My heart inclines to go with my neighbor. What? More fools still, said obstinate. Be ruled by me and go back. Who knows whither such a brain-sick fellow will lead you. Go back, go back and be wise. Nay, but do thou come with thy neighbor pliable. There are things to be had which I spoke of, and many more glories beside. If you believe not me, then read it here in this book. And for the truth of what is expressed therein, behold, all is confirmed by the blood of him that made it. Well, neighbor obstinate, said Pliable, I begin to come to a point. I intend to go along with this good man and to cast in my lot with him. But, my good companion, do you know the way to this desired place? I am directed, said Christian, by a man whose name is Evangelist, to speed me to a little gate that is before us, where we shall receive instructions about the way. Come then, good neighbor, let us be going. And they went off together. And obstinate said, I will go back to my place. I will not be a companion of such misled, fantastic fellows. Now, in the next thing, which we're going to skip, they talk about heavenly glories and all of that. All of the things they're going to see, they're going to be dazzled by seraphim and cherubim and all kinds of thousands of thousands of angels. None of them are, are all of the people that are there. None of them are harmful, but loving and holy. Everyone walking in the sight of God, standing in his presence with acceptance forever. And in a word there, we shall see the elders with their golden crowns and the holy virgins. 
with their golden harps. And there we shall see men that by the word were cut in pieces, burned in flames, eaten of beasts, drowned in the seas <clears throat> for the love that they bore to the Lord of the place, all well and clothed with immortality as with a garment. So that's a description of heaven. And this is just what makes Pilgrim's Progress so beautiful to read. And so he's just weaving in these things. Pliable is like, I'm in. That sounds great. He's excited. And so he goes. So they end up as they're traveling in a swamp, a slough of despond. Despond means depression or discouragement. <clears throat> Here they wallowed for a time, a miry slough, it says, and being heedless, they fell suddenly into the bog. And the name of the slough was despond. And here, therefore, they wallowed for a time, being grievously bedaubed with dirt. And Christian, because of the burden that was on his back, began to sink in the mire. Then said Pliable, Ah, neighbor Christian, where are you now? Truly, said Christian, I do not know. At that, Pliable began to be offended angrily to his fellow and said, Is this the happiness that you have told me of all this while? If we have such ill speed at our first going out, what may we expect twixt this and our journey's end? If I ever get out of here with my life, you shall possess the brave country alone. And with that, he gave a desperate struggle or two and got out of the mire on that side of the slough that was close to his own house. <clears throat> Notice that he has no burden on his back. So he has no conviction of sin, no fear of hell. He just wants to go to heaven. And so as soon as there's any trouble at all, just like the stony ground here, he quickly falls away. As soon as there's any difficulty, he gives up. And so he goes back to his home and is basically reviled there, but ends up being welcomed back in. And Christian is there. Help comes and gets him out of the swamp. And the next thing that happens is the conversation with Mr. Worldly Wise Man. And we'll stop there. All right. Any questions, comments? Next time, two weeks from now, God willing, I would love for you to pick up at this place and read uh, the stages. See the stages? We're going to go through stage two at least. So read about the Wicked Gate, the conversation with Goodwill, Interpreter's House, and all of the things in Interpreter's House, if you could, next time. You can go online and read it, and it will be more helpful if we uh, have read it ahead of time. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification, and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.